Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. A happy solemnity of the Immaculate Conception to you. And uh, right before the program started, Richie reached in and turned on the the video lights. I had forgotten to turn them on, and I was just thinking to myself that it might have been better for you watching on Rumble than if we had actually left them off. But uh, (laughs) anyway... Going to uh, actually taking a little different tack than usual today. I'm going to tackle a, a topic that way not normally uh, the kind of thing that I talk about on this program. I'm going to actually be talking a little bit about critical race theory uh, and you know what it is and what it's not and uh, so forth. Uh, and the reason that I, I think it's worthwhile to um, treat it here is that I believe and I will defend that. Uh, the belief that it constitutes something of a false gospel. So we're going to talk about that, and more importantly, what you uh, can do about it. On a happier note, as I mentioned, it's the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, so later on in the program we're going to take some time to unpack the third Marian dogma uh, and do so with some insights from one of our favorite authors, the late, great uh, Father Lawrence Lavosic. But first, we just celebrated the third or second Sunday of Advent, and I'm uh, going to talk about that to open the show. In England, the second Sunday of Advent is called Stir Up Sunday. Now, you know, if you've been a listener to this program, that uh, my heritage is largely English. And uh, Stir Up Sunday, an English tradition that comes uh, from the opening prayer, the collect of the second Sunday of Advent in the traditional Mass, which is, Stir up our hearts, O Lord, and make way or make ready the ways of thine only begotten Son. So stir up Sunday. Now, the stir up also refers to the day when English families would traditionally begin the Christmas pudding, and they would uh, mix the uh, the pudding. Each member of the family take a turn uh, mixing while saying a prayer, uh, or, uh, you know, for the little ones, perhaps making a wish. And um, the pudding was always stirred clockwise, which is to say from east to west, in honor of the the Magi, the three uh, wise men who came from the east to visit the baby Jesus. So just a little <clears throat> Anglophile Advent trivia. And now for the uh, the gospel, the traditional gospel for Stir Up Sunday. It's taken from Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 10, reading our translation, the uh, New Catholic Bible, as we have been doing here of late. When John, who was in prison, heard what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to him to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go back and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As John's disciples were departing, Jesus spoke to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swaying in the wind? Then what did you go out to see? Someone robed in fine clothing? Those who wear fine clothing are found in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and far more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, 
who will prepare your way before you. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. So the first question is, what was John the Baptist uh, doing in prison? Well, he had been cast into prison uh, because he publicly rebuked King Herod uh, because he was living in adultery with his uh, stepbrother's wife. Now, not to mention he was also lusting after her daughter. Now, there's an important lesson here uh, from St. John in, in prison, uh, and that is that we should not be deterred from speaking the truth even if we're going to have to suffer for it. You know, St. John was a prophet. He had a prophetic ministry. It was his job to proclaim the truth, his calling from God. So he didn't try and gain favor with Herod through flattery or by remaining silent, and he didn't wring his hands, oh, somebody might accuse me of weaponizing the Sixth and Ninth Commandments. No. No, he rebuked King Herod, and he did it in public because he knew what every Catholic from the Pope on down ought to know, that it is better and nobler not to mention more profitable for our salvation to be a martyr for the truth, like John the Baptist was, than to compromise the faith. And as baptized Catholics, we too share in the prophetic ministry of Christ. And that's something that, uh, that's no nonsense. All right, the next question is, why did John send his disciples to Jesus to ask if he was the Messiah or not, or if they were still waiting uh, for him to come? John knew who Jesus was. You know, John the Baptist is the one who told his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Even when he was a baby, even before he was born, right, at the visitation, John leapt in, in the womb of St. Elizabeth before the presence of Christ, like David leaving, uh, leaping before the ark. He was the, the herald of God. He was God's messenger, like it says in the gospel. Uh, uh, the original translation says uh, his, he was his angel, he sent his angel before him. And Jesus actually calls him Elijah. He says he's, he's the Elijah that was destined to return and, and make straight the way of the Lord. And he's the one of whom our Lord Jesus said, Amen, I say to you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. So, you know, it was John that said, He must increase and I must decrease, back in, in uh, the Gospel of John chapter 3. So the baptizer sent his apostles to Jesus so that they would be convinced, uh, you know, that he wanted them to hear it from his own lips, that it was time to stop following the messenger and to start following the Messiah. And, and likewise for us, you know, we're, we are not primarily followers of our pastors or our bishops or even the Pope. We are the followers of Christ. And the bishops can take a lesson from this too. You know, like John the Baptist, they, uh, they participate in a prophetic ministry. I mean, we all do through our baptism, but they in a, in, a, in a special way. And they are the official teachers of the church. That's, that is the ministry of prophecy. And it is their solemn duty to see to it that the faithful entrusted to them are well instructed in the faith. And same goes for Catholic parents with their children. Okay, so what did Christ say to the disciples of John? He says, go back and tell him what you see and what you hear. Uh, you know, the, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the, the poor have the good news preached to them. In other words, all the prophecies about the Messiah, everything that John said was, was going to happen is being fulfilled in me. 
right? And from that, they should be convinced that uh, Jesus is the promised Messiah that John was preaching about. And then Jesus asked the crowds, he turns to the crowds and says, what did you go out to see? A reed blowing in the wind, a man dressed in soft clothes, a, a No, a prophet, and more than a prophet. He was praising the faithfulness of of St. John, who would not be discouraged from exercising that sacred ministry, that ministry of prophecy. He couldn't be discouraged by by threats, by by the commands of Herod, by by fear of uh, uh, imprisonment or even death. And so he also, he mentions John's life, and he's approving that austere life as a way of encouraging us <clears throat> to, to mortify our flesh and to do penance. Right? Do penance and, and believe in the gospel. That, those are the first words of his ministry. And these are, that's the special message, I believe, that this gospel is giving us for Advent, right? that, that we mortify ourselves in preparation for the coming of Christmas. Amen. And especially for the coming of our Lord at the end of all things. So uh, Jesus adds, uh, finally, blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Well, what's that about? Well, there were people, I mean, then as now, who were scandalized by Jesus, you know, and not by, you know, his behavior, uh, um, the way we think of scandal today, but by his humility and, and by his poverty and his suffering and death on the cross. This is not the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. And he says, blessed are those who are not uh, um, scandalized by me. He's saying that, that um, people who um, were scandalized by Jesus because he wasn't the kind of uh, Messiah they were expecting, that they would despise him, that they would reject him. When really, the more he humbled himself, the more they should have loved and honored him. Because it is the great condescension of God that he would become a human being to save us from our sins. So why does the uh, church put this gospel before us here on the second Sunday of Advent? Uh, primarily, it is so that like the, uh, uh, the disciples of St. John, that we can recognize Jesus as our Lord and Savior by his works and by his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and those of John the Baptist. And, and so that we can follow the baptizer's example of making ourselves worthy of the grace of redemption by preparing the way of the Lord in our hearts. And we do that by our faithful observance of Advent. It is like the prayer says, Stir up our hearts, O Lord, to make ready the ways of thine only begotten Son, that by his coming we may be worthy to serve thee with purified minds. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so, uh, by the way, since St. John was in prison... Uh, that's how the gospel begins. The moral topic for the, the old Council of Trent sermon program was um, how to handle adversity, what should console us. And there's a number of things, but I think the most important is that our sufferings born well with patience and obedience make us saints. And that's no nonsense. Okay, coming back, talking about uh, is critical race theory a false gospel? and more on the Immaculate Conception when we return right after this. Stay with us.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Your host, Matthew Arnold, uh, here with you on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to have you with us. As I said in the opening segment, going to be talking about something today that's a little bit of a departure uh, for us on No Nonsense Catholic, but I think it's important. Um, I'll start by saying the other day, uh, you know who Ralph Martin is, I suspect. He's a well-known Catholic speaker and author. He's the founder of Renewal Ministries. Well, just the other day on YouTube, um, first week of December, he said, and I quote, It's easy to get the impression these days that the main thing the Catholic Church is concerned about is getting people vaccinated, or climate change, or the Amazon, things like that. Quite honestly, the primary mission of the Church isn't to save the Amazon. It's to save people from hell. It's to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ as the Savior of the whole world. All right, unquote. And he couldn't be more right. I've been saying this, you know, for, for years. I've been uh, insisting that the mission of the church hasn't changed, that, that Vatican II didn't change the mission of the church or the teaching of the church, and for the simple reason that it could not, nor did it even really uh, attempt to. However, a popular interpretation of Vatican II what Benedict XVI identified as the hermeneutic of rupture, or what's also known as the the spirit of Vatican II, um, which interpretation is all too often promoted through official channels, makes the claim that the Council did, in fact, change the teaching of the Church. How many times have you heard, oh no, that went out with Vatican II, regarding some non-negotiable point of the faith? Or, 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 you know, how a host of novelties have been justified as being called for by Vatican II, quote-unquote, when that's demonstrably false. Now, it should come as no surprise that the practical effect of that interpretation is that many Catholics today uh, have a false impression of their own faith. St. Paul talks about it in in, uh, Galatians 1, 6 and following. He said, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In reality, there is not another one, but there are some who are troubling you by perverting the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel to you other than the one we proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. We said it before, and now I repeat it. If anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one you received, let him be accursed. And then he asks, Does it now appear to you that I'm trying to gain the approval of human beings rather than the approval of God? Am I seeking to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now let's underline that last verse. If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. These are strong words. Paul is the one that brought the gospel to the Galatians, the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, the the good news of the new life of the Spirit, of eternal life. But there were many false teachers there, and they came with all kinds of of restrictions and demands. And you see how strongly St. Paul speaks out against them. Let them be accursed. In the Greek, that's literally anathema. Um, St. Jerome just brought that into his Latin translation as anathema. And the, uh, the original English translation had anathema, you know, because a curse isn't really strong enough. You know, we're talking about 
excommunication. We're talking ultimately about being cut off from salvation. And we still have false teachers today. In fact, we got a whole new you know, set of false teachings that's overrunning the country. It's in all the news. It's made its way into the church. And it looks good on the surface to a lot of people. If you embrace this false gospel, you would get a ton of social approval. Lots of likes, lots of thumbs up on Facebook, countless pats on the back for, for, for following this new teaching. But, but remember what St. Paul said, trying to please men means that you cannot please God. You can't please people and be a servant of Christ. Now, we are awash in false gospels. But the one I'm talking about today, what I want to uh, point out, is critical race theory. It is a false teaching. And yes, it's wrong in ways that conflict with what we know is true as Catholics. You know, it actually overlaps um, the Catholic moral teaching and, and, and even competes with it, which is why I feel like I can call it a false gospel. But you could, I mean, you could almost call it a new religion. I, it may not talk about God specifically, but it's got all the elements. Right and wrong, sin, confession, repentance, a, a vision of, a, of a, a perfect future world and an explanation of how this one went wrong. It even has an ultimate concern, to borrow from uh, Paul Tillich, the um, German theologian. It's got an ultimate concern. That's what he says, his, his definition of religion. And I strongly suspect that you have run into critical race theory, whether you know it or not. It might have been at work, school, among family members. And unless you've dug in and done some study on it, you probably wondered what to make of it. Should Catholics embrace it? Should we buy into it or not? That's the question. So we're going to take a look at critical race theory and at Christianity as well. Now, it goes without saying that we don't have the time to uh, um, go into this in any great detail, to have a, a, some comprehensive analysis, Going to you know, a couple of segments of, of an hour-long podcast. But I want you to know how the Catholic answers, the Catholic answers to some of life's most basic questions are very, very different from critical race theory's answers. So how shall we define critical race theory. What is it really? I'm sorry to say it doesn't have an official definition. Uh, Different people, including the critical race theorists themselves, um, who call themselves crits, by the way, that's their term, not mine. The crits define it in different ways. Uh, In in any event, the one thing everyone agrees on is that its origin, uh, it began with the Harvard Law School professor named Derek Bell, now, it's Derrick Bell, not Derek Bell, like the ball player, but Derek Bell, the, uh, the professor, back in the 1970s. And it was meant to be uh, an academic and even a legal approach to identifying and solving, quote-unquote, racism. And it stayed pretty much contained in the universities for a long time. Like I said, it's been brewing since the 70s. Uh, although, I mean, contained may not be the best word, uh, after all. Dr. Bell and company did teach it to their students and their students taught it to their students. So far, they may have taught it to you when you were in college. But what you have to recognize about this is that today, especially, the critical race theorists take racism pretty much as the whole story. Racism is the only problem and and critical race theory then is the only answer. 
Now, you probably noticed on, you know, the news and social media and whatnot, anything that can be labeled racism, you know, does get labeled racism, all right? Even some things that can't seriously be labeled racism get labeled that way anyhow. It is as though that were the only sin. That's the only thing that should be devoided, that should be avoided. And, and you wonder, what about other liberal causes? You know, what about people who are, who are opposed to, um, you know, who are, who are anti-LGBTQ+, plus or, or who are um, anti-gender identity or gender fluidity, whatever they call it now? You know, after all, there is critical sexual theory, uh, critical gender theory, Right. What about people who are anti-climate change or whatever, all, all these liberal causes? You know, for the crits, none of that matters. It's all racism all the time because critical race theory acts and lives as though racism is the problem and critical race theory is the answer. And so it, it's about, at the end of the day, massive societal change. It's, that's the only way to solve racism tear down these various structures, right? And the interesting thing is when you start to say which structures specifically, the last one they get vague. You know, that's, that's when they don't want to answer, give you a straight answer. Okay? But to better understand critical race theory, I think it, it would be well to, to look at the way it addresses some of the most fundamental questions uh, for human beings, right? The kind of questions that really get at the heart of a thing. You know, I mean, you know, if you want to know what a, a new trend in thinking is about, you apply these questions and you will quickly know what makes it tick. Uh, you know, you can study the outsides all you want, all, all the different branches. You can follow all the threads, go down all the rabbit holes. You can do that if you want. But these fundamental questions and answers reveal what's at the root. Uh, and, and that's, you know... Uh, what we're going to do at this juncture. Okay, here are the questions. What is ultimate reality? What does it mean to be human? What's the ideal life that we should strive for? What is our basic human problem? And number five, how is that basic human problem solved? Now, does that sound complicated? You know, it doesn't have to be. And so let's begin with the way um, that we answer these questions as Catholics. All right, so number one, what is ultimate reality? Well, that's easy, God. God is the supreme being who created all things. God's name is I am because he is existence, all right? God is the ultimate reality. So what then does it mean to be human? Well, to be human means to be created in the image and likeness of God possessing the spiritual qualities of intellect and free will. In other words, to be human is to be able to know and to choose. Now, what kind of life should we strive for? Another way you might ask that is, what's the meaning and purpose of life? Which <laughs> the old penny catechism gives the answer to that. Meaning and purpose of life is to know, love, and serve God in this world and be happy with him forever in the next. Um, what is the basic human problem? Basic human problem is sin. All of our problems, every other problem that we have, ignorance, sickness, concupiscence, death, these are the result of original sin. And they're kept alive by our own personal sins. These are the things that, that you know, keep us from being in relationship with God. And how is that basic human problem solved? Well, St. John gives us the answer in his gospel. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may attain eternal life. On the Holy Cross, Jesus won all the graces necessary for us to restore our relationship with God and our relationships with each other. And he communicates those graces to the world through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Full stop. Five questions, five answers. Now we're going to look at how critical race theory would answer those questions. And please understand, this is not hyperbole. I'm not criticizing, I'm quoting. Okay? Number one, what is ultimate reality? Well, they don't really have an answer to that question. Uh, or, you know, any, any question that, that deviates from, from their main thesis, they say, we don't talk about that here. We got problems to solve. We got big problems. Racism. Okay? That's the one that we have to deal with. And that's what we're going to talk about when we come back. We're going to apply the rest of these five fundamental questions to critical race theory and see if it doesn't constitute a false gospel and then what we should do about it. That and more when we come back with uh, No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Okay, welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic, continuing with our our five fundamental questions um, that we're applying to critical race theory to discover if it is, in fact, a false gospel. So the the question that they give, what is ultimate reality? Again, they don't really have an answer for that one. They are too busy dealing with the big problem of racism. So what does it mean to be human? Well, again, crits don't have a formal answer to that either which seems strange, because that would seem like, like a first, would have to be a first principle, um, considering that they're, uh, you know, they're talking about race all the time. But again, if you read enough of their literature, it becomes clear that the most important thing about human beings is whatever race they happen to be, which is ironic because some of the critical race theory materials say that race isn't real, that race, quote-unquote, has no biological basis, that, that we shouldn't even treat it as if, as if it were real. And then in those same materials, they, they act as if the most important thing about us is our race. And that's a contradiction. And a contradiction is a nonsense. I mean, it's a basic principle of rational thought. A thing can't be and not be in the same sense at the same time. It's the principle of non-contradiction. To, to, to violate that is to make your argument nonsense. And <laughs> I actually saw a thing online where, where a critical race theory activist was challenged with this. And her response was, critical thinking is racist. <laughs> because the, the philosophers who reckoned out the building blocks of, of, of rational thought, the, the ancient Greeks, were, were white. So, so rational thought, critical thinking, is in fact racist. Now, how do you argue with that? Um, okay, next question. What is the ideal life we should strive for? And according to critical race theory, the best thing, the number one thing that we should hope to achieve is racial equity, okay? Meaning not, not, not equal opportunity or equality of opportunity, but equality of outcome. So equal distribution of, of you know, money and, and political power and so forth amongst all the races, that, they would say, is what social justice is. That's what they're after. And what is the basic human problem? For them, the basic human problem is that white people are in charge. 
Again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not hyperbolizing, you know, I'm not criticizing, I'm quoting. White people have been in charge for so long, they say, they don't even realize how much they're in charge. It's a world by whites and for whites. In fact, it is so bad that Critz can sum up the problem in one word, which is whiteness. Whiteness is the problem. Now, again, I mentioned rational thought. Well, I, I'll put a bookmark there. We'll, we'll do the next question. Uh, the, the final question, how is the basic human problem solved? Well, the basic human problem is, is whiteness. So, therefore, people of color are not the problem. So they don't have a problem to solve as far as CRT is concerned. So there's the only humans who, who uh, need to solve the basic human problems are, are the white ones. We're the only ones with a problem. And since we can't change the color of our skin, um, we can, uh, though, get woke about it. We can check our privilege. We can, we can be ashamed of, of our whiteness and renounce our whiteness. But nothing, they say, is really going to change until we topple and replace all of these racist structures and institutions, right? Hence the, the denial of, of critical thinking and rational thought. Um, and, and hence the, the 1619 problem, where we're going to recast history um, along these lines. And, and that's the thing. You know, it doesn't matter. I'm going to tell you right now, whoever you are, whatever color you may be, whatever your national origin, there was a time when probably fully two-thirds of the people that looked like you were slaves. Two-thirds of the entire world was enslaved in, in the ancient world, back during the days of the Roman Empire. And that the one-third who were the enslavers, or the, the free persons, were a rainbow coalition of all different colors, okay? As were uh, the people who were enslaved, you know? That's why they have to, to, to rewrite history, to say that, that slavery is only, uh, uh, the, you know, responsibility for slavery, it's, it's a white institution. It's, it's a white problem and not, and not a human problem. And, and that, is, that is a problem. You know, that, that's a big issue. Sin isn't, isn't restricted to, uh, you know, one kind of uh, people. And so we focus in on a couple of these questions. And you can see the differences between the Catholic view and the CRT view. First off, the, what's the ideal life that we should strive for? Like I said, for Christians, it's, it's, about, it's all centered on God. But for CRT, God doesn't even enter into the conversation. Okay? And second, what's the solution? For Christians, it's forgiveness. It's freedom in Christ, like it says in Galatians 4. For critical race theory, it's white shame and renunciation and privilege checking. And when you're done with that for one day... The next day, there's more shame and more renunciation and more privilege checking, right? Because every day when you wake up, you're still white. So there's no forgiveness. There's no freedom. There's no uh, hope of success, okay? And, and, and the only way forward is to just destroy whatever white people have built. So it's, it's like a twisted um, version. And when I say what white people built, that's not even fair because... <laughs> White people didn't exclusively build Western civilization. That, again, that's another nonsense. It is, uh, it is like a twisted version of the, of the old heresy of Pelagianism. You know, you know, theologians, I think it's akin to what theologians call legalism. The idea that by following these certain moral rules, we can save ourselves. You know, we can make ourselves better purely by our own efforts without any divine help. 
But the critical race theory, they take it even a step further. You know, they say the, the only answer is for, is for white people to follow this continuing style, uh, uh, cycle of shame and renunciation, and they must do this, but they can never make themselves better. They'll never be better. So it's pretty clear that, that critical race theory gets the problem wrong, they get the ideal solution wrong, they get the practical solution wrong, and it's precisely because they get God wrong. They get humanity wrong. It's all wrong, and it's in direct conflict with what can be known by human reason and, of course, by the light of divine revelation, or what St. Thomas Aquinas used to call reality. That's why critical race theory is practically a false religion all in itself. It is certainly a different gospel. The real gospel tells of forgiveness and freedom and life in Christ. CRT ignores all of that as if it weren't literally the most important thing in the world. Instead, critical race theory essentially says that no matter who you are, no matter what color you are, you have to live under a yoke of slavery to your skin color. And therefore, racism is the answer that critical race theory gives to their greatest problem, which is racism. And and that's a contradiction. As our good Lord said, Racism is a bad problem, but, but the, the solution to it isn't more racism. You know, it is like what Jesus said, that you can't cast out Satan with Satan. You can't do something bad to try and cure something bad. You can't do something bad in order to try and bring about a good result. Now, there's a lot more, of course, to, to critical race theory. They go on and on and on. It's grown like weeds. And, and, but looking at its core, as we did, looking at the heart of critical race theory, you can see that from a Catholic perspective, at least, it is fatally flawed. No matter how things look on the outside, you know, you might say, you know, because understanding is good. Racism is bad. You know, I, I, I get all that and, that. and that's all true. But when you look at the heart of critical race theory, you see that it's corrupt where it counts. And that's enough to identify it as, as a false gospel. It's enough for us to, to treat it the way St. Paul treated every other false gospel, which is to call it out. And that's what we need to do with, with critical race theory today. So, so what do you do? What do I do? Okay, I've got my little platform here, and I'm talking to you about it. What's the practical steps? Well, the first one, of course, is to know your faith. Because it's not just critical race theory. There's a million things. There's a million false gospels that are, that are being promoted right now. And that's why St. John Paul II said, and I quote, lay people must be strong enough and sufficiently catechized to testify how the Christian faith constitutes the only valid response to the problems and hopes that life poses to every person and society. Not a response, not one response among many, the only valid response, okay? Read my lips. No Catholic can seriously consider critical race theory as a valid response to the problem of racism. Now, if you get into a dispute with somebody who, who likes CRT, okay, then what do you do? Well, I remember hearing a priest say uh, years ago, I never converted a bigot. Now, this was a, a, a man, a priest, Catholic priest, did a lot of evangelizing, made a lot of converts. And he said, 
you know, there are bigoted whites who hate blacks. There are bigoted blacks who hate whites. There are bigoted liberals who hate conservatives and bigoted conservatives who hate liberals. There are bigoted uh, Christians that hate Jews and bigoted Jews that hate Christians and bigoted Catholics who hate Protestants and bigoted Protestants who hate Catholics, etc., etc. And I have never converted a bigot. But then he told the story of the conversion of St. Paul, who at the time was called Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was a bigot and a persecutor of the first Christians. He even held the coats of the men who stoned to death the first Christian martyr, St. Stephen. So he was on the wrong side at the death of the first martyr, (laughs) okay? And what happened? St. Paul, or Saul the Tarsus, Saul the bigot, uh, was transformed. What what transformed him into St. Paul the Apostle? And the answer is God. God intervened. Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, that is who changed St. Paul's heart and not some argument. Okay? And so it remains. Bigotry, including the, the bigotry of critical race theory, is irrational. And so, well, I'll, we're going to have to pick this up on the, other, on the other end. I have a final point to make, but I don't want to make it while the music's running. Okay, we're going to come back with that final point on CRT, and we're going to talk about something a lot more elevated, the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. When we return with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right after this. Okay, thanks for waiting. <laughs> the final point on the critical race theory thing. We were talking about, well, the, the priest who said you can never convert a bigot. We we're talking about the conversion of St. Uh, Paul, right? That Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle. Saul the bigot became Paul the Catholic because of the intervention of God. It was grace that uh, changed his heart, not an intellectual argument. And that's the thing. Bigotry... And I would include critical race theory under that umbrella. Bigotry, racism, kind of bigotry, is irrational. As I mentioned before, you know, it's like the Black Lives Matter activists who said without scruple that only white people can be racist. Or, or, or the critical race theory, uh, you know, person who, who says that, uh, uh, you know, rational thought as conceived by Western philosophy is, is racist because Western philosophers were white. Both of these people completely, blissfully unaware of how vile and how racist those remarks are, right? The very thing that they pretend to revile, they, they actually practice. Yeah, right off the, the entire Western civilization, because the people who founded it were, were white, okay? This kind of attitude fails to understand that, that without, you know— Understanding the building blocks of rational thought, there wouldn't be any modern medicine or, or science or, or uh, you know, smartphones or social media or universities, which were invented by the Catholic Church, thank you very much, where, where you could go and peddle your nonsense, okay? Without the combination of, of, of Greco-Roman philosophy and the work they did in, in regard to human reason, and w- without the combination of that with the divine revelation, 
uh, which, you know, is, is perfectly, um, you know, ultimately uh, revealed in Christ, without, as they used to say, without the marriage of Athens and Jerusalem, there wouldn't be a modern world. We, we would never, the world would never have accepted that, that the moral code that allowed our civilization to exist. And, and I can tell you one thing for sure, there'd still be slavery. Okay. So what Father said about converting bigots is, is true. You can evangelize until you're blue in the face, but it's the Holy Spirit that does the converting. That being said, if you get involved in, in some kind of uh, dispute with someone who's, who's, uh, uh, who likes critical race theory, especially if it's a, a fellow Catholic, boy, pray for that person, okay? And do not attack them because it's not going to help. If you're going to do, take, a, take a, a, a leaf from the book of Socrates, speaking of old white philosophers, uh, ask questions. Jesus used questions all the time, hundreds of times in the scriptures, in fact. You know, we, we ask those five questions about, uh, um, you know, what, what to see our critical race theory. What do they really believe? You know, how do they answer these five questions? Well, you could ask them too. Uh, and, and, and maybe one would be, um, how do you think critical race theory is going to bring about racial harmony? And, you know, listen to their response if they have one. And then ask them, well, well what, what led you to that conclusion? And then listen some more. And then maybe you say, do you see any potential problems there? You know, because it, it is possible that, uh, you know, it, using a combination of, of kindness and common sense, you may help people realize some of this stuff on their own. But don't forget, forget to pray. I was actually speaking with somebody the other day. He was uh, talking about um, these various Catholic things, you know, kind of militant Catholic things he sees online. And, uh, you know, he's having some issues discerning. He said, what do you think? And I said, oh, I'll tell you what, what St. Francis told his brothers in regard to spiritual reading. He says, by, by all means, do that. But just follow the example of Jesus. Because when we see in the scripture that he prayed more than he read. And that's the advice I'll pass on to you too. Okay, in our final moments, and I'm sorry that it's just the final moments, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the Immaculate Conception. That is... Um, the feast that we celebrate today, the great doctrine that the, uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary <clears throat> was exempt from original sin, um, that, that she was never in the state of separation from God, um, which, you know, all of us find ourselves in before baptism, that Mary was preserved from sin in view of the merits of her son, and the grace of the Redeemer prevented her from being tainted by original sin, whereas we have been rescued by this sin through baptism. That's the heart of it. And you understand this, this um, I mean, the people <laughs> always embraced this. It was only the theologians that had problems with it, you know. Um, and it was a, um, even, even Thomas Aquinas was not convinced that Mary was, was um, free from sin from her conception but that she had to be freed from sin. And it was a, a very simple Scottish Franciscan, uh, John Duns Scotus, who was the one who came up with this, this formulation that, that uh, Mary was preserved from sin in view of the merits of her son. The grace of her Redeemer kept her from being tainted by original sin where we're freed by baptism. He said there's two ways to be saved. 
You know, if there, if there was a ditch dug in the middle of the road, you could save someone from the ditch by coming and helping them out after they fall in. Or you could save them from falling in in the first place. And of course, that was the special grace that was given to Mary. You know, the uh, main reason that we believe in the Immaculate Conception is because of uh, Mary's divine maternity, that it was fitting. And I love that word. I, I'm always, uh, suspicious isn't the right word. I, you know, it just, it rubs me the wrong way somehow when I hear someone say, God had to fill in the blank. You know, God's all powerful. Let's remember that, shall we? But God is also, you know, um, he's all everything, every good quality, right? And there are no contradictions in God. Uh, but I would say, yes, it's fitting. It's fitting that the mother of God be always without sin and without the original sin. The son of God could do it, so why wouldn't he? Right? And he certainly has done so. You know, and also if, if Mary had ever been in original sin, even for a moment, she would have been in a state of enmity toward her son. She would have been in enmity with God. But what does it say in the book of Genesis? God says to the devil, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Her enmity is with the devil. She's never at, at enmity with God. Right? And, and the other thing was, as St. Paul tells us in the book of Hebrews, that we have the Old Testament types and the New Testament fulfillments. And the New Testament fulfillments are always greater, always superior to the Old Testament types. Easy to see that with our Lord, of course. Our Lord is greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. Uh, the Holy Eucharist is greater than, than the manna in the desert, right? Um, there's one kind of heavenly bread and there's another. And one is clearly superior. Uh, the Virgin Mary is superior to the Ark of the Covenant, which was a, a, a type of Mary, because the Ark held uh, the Word of God and, and, and uh, the staff of Aaron, which was the symbol of the priesthood, and, and the, the tablets of the law, which are the Word of God, and a jar of the manna, which was the miraculous bread from heaven. But Christ, in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, is the fulfillment of all those things. He is the Word made flesh. He's He's the true living bread from heaven. He's the great high priest. And so it, it is, it's fitting that Mary be free from sin to, to house that great holiness. But the other thing, St. Paul is saying that the, the fulfillment is greater than the type. Well, Eve was created immaculate. She was created without sin. And so again, if the Blessed Virgin Mary had been under the curse of original sin, even for an instant, that would make Eve superior to her. And that's backwards. You know, that, 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 that would be a, a contradiction and therefore a nonsense. Okay, like I say, the, the writers of the early church were clearly convinced of the Immaculate Conception. The, the faithful, I don't think, ever wavered. It was, you know, the, uh, the, the theologians that muddied the waters. But then in the... Uh, Year 1453, the Immaculate Conception was defined officially, and it was defined as being in harmony uh, not only with the devotion of the Church and Holy Scripture, but also with right reason. And then on December the 8th of 1854, Blessed Pius IX solemnly proclaimed the dogma, and he used these words here. He said, 
We pronounce and define that the doctrine which states that the Most Blessed Virgin Mary was in the first instant of her conception by the singular grace and privilege of God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. We pronounce and define this has been revealed by God and is therefore to be firmly and unswervingly believed by all the faithful. And that goes back not only to Genesis, but then to the words of the angel, hail full of grace, ave gratia plena. In the Greek, it's kairi kikari tomene, which means not only full of grace, but in the Greek, the the connotation is always full. That there was never a moment that she wasn't full of grace. And it's interesting too, our country was dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary. She is our patroness. Today is the patronal feast of the United States. Okay, so you're a, you're a Catholic. Today's a holy day of obligation. If you haven't been to Mass, you need to get to Mass if you're listening to this uh, on the 8th of December. It's a holy day of obligation. Get yourself to Mass. And understand, too, that, it's, that if you are in the United States of America, that this is an extra special holy day because it is our patronal feast. And I'd like to point out that the bishops of the United States at the, the third plenary session uh, of Baltimore, third council of Baltimore, in 1846 proclaimed Mary, the Immaculate Conception, as the patroness of the United States. That's almost 10 years before Pius IX proclaimed the dogma. So we've been at it for, for quite a while here in the United States of America. Also, um, just last year, Private devotion to Our Lady of America was approved by the bishops of competence, and uh, we are encouraged to call upon Mary, Our Lady of America, the Immaculate Conception. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for listening. You know what? Later, I'm going to be uh, recording one of our next fireside chat. You know, if you are uh, a $25 or more uh, per month donor, Monthly donor, 25 or more, you get those fireside chats. Sorry, we're a little behind our time this month, but we're going to be recording it today, and it'll be posted soon. And if you want to get into that stuff, that's only part of the exclusive things that are available to our donors of $25 a month or more. So uh, don't forget to go to vmpr.org. If you can give us a hand, you can click on the Donate button or become a monthly donor. And don't uh, uh, please remember us in your prayers. And until next time, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for supporting us spiritually and financially. And may God richly bless you and your family. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.